We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Blue Wire. What is up, Nets fans? Welcome to Brooklyn Buzz. I'm Nick Faye. With me as always, Jack Manuel. Jack, how we doing? When is it going to be game two? Yeah, it's felt like eternity, you know, in between these games. Obviously, a three-day break. We're not playing until Wednesday. So, a lot of content to put out, though. It's like... um like the pain you can't keep coming back to. It's like addicting almost that you just like want to keep absorbing the content, even though it's a painful ending. Yeah. It's like some movies, like, you know, watching infinity war, like for the millionth time or certain Harry Potter movies. And it's just like, look, I know what's going to happen here, but unfortunately the, I mean, it can be unfortunate or fortunate depending on how you look at it. We got game two. We can come back. We can bounce back. But there's also possibly more pain in store. We are, it's that you know that meme that everyone knows and everyone has used. It's ah shit, here we go again. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I liked your Marvel comparison. It's like watching Endgame and watching Iron Man die again every time. You're just like, yeah, this isn't gonna be great, but we're gonna go through it. But before we get into it, quick reminder: you can find the buzz on all streaming platforms. Jack, where do we start? Nick, I want to kick off with you, my friend, because you had a a pretty in-depth thread sort of analyzing game one. Shout out to you for being able to actually go through that experience again. You must be some sort of sadist. From rehashing it all and analyzing it from probably a closer and maybe a more objective lens, what did you notice about game one? Yeah, I'm not super crazy. I only was able to watch the second half. I just knew I couldn't put myself through the entire game, but... uh, Yeah, there was a lot of takeaways, I think, in terms of things that we already brought up on the previous pod, but they were even more glaring than before. I think probably the biggest thing for me is the play of Bruce Brown, just how poorly he played in so many different ways in that game. You know, defensively, he was not good. You know, constantly getting beat by Jalen Brown, even being beat by Marcus Smart off the dribble is just something that can't happen. I felt like on the boards... Just some lazy stuff in terms of not putting a body on guys. Yeah, he's probably going to get out-rebounded anyways, but if you can at least try to put a body on an Al Horford or somebody like that, you're at least giving yourself an opportunity to make a play or letting somebody else you know, make a play on the ball. And then, you know, offensively, the Celtics really just did not care about Bruce Brown. They really just said, okay, stand in the corner. We don't care. You know, Al Horford was constantly ready to help Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown, whoever it was. They just had absolutely no respect for Bruce Brown. And it's ironic given his comments before the series. In saying that, you know, Bruce Brown was one of your big takeaways. How can he change, the coaching staff change certain sets to allow Bruce Brown to be a more effective player? Yeah, I think, um, well, defensively alone, he just needs to play at a higher level. 
you know, he needs to just be the guy that he can be, you know, play with the level of physicality. There was one play where Jalen Brown just literally muscled him, just moved him down into the paint and got a layup. And that just can't happen. And I think he needs to have an impact in the other areas. He needs to rebound the basketball. He needs to make those hustle plays. There has to be like a Bruce Brown diving for a loose ball type play in that game. And offensively, I think it's just going to be tough at different points because how good the Celtics are and how locked in and their game plan in terms of like, we know there's really not much he can do. And he was timid in terms of getting the ball in his hands and attacking the rim. So it wasn't even like he was creating rim pressure in which we've seen him do the last couple months of the season. So the only way that he can be more impactful offensively is constantly moving, but also making sure he's moving into the right spaces because there was numerous plays where he was almost giving the Celtics an advantage because he was cutting towards a way in which they could now double-team Kyrie or double-team Kevin Durant. There's also one play where he's standing next to Kessler Edwards. Like, literally, probably from the end of my desk to the other end of my desk is how close they were on a basketball floor. So he needs to be spatially aware and understand how he can have a positive impact in that way. And some of it's just like running more sets and having him used offensively, being a screener, being a ball hander, whatever it is. But at the end of the day, I think it's a fair question can he have a positive offensive impact in the series without, you know, hampering the the level of play of Kyrie and KD? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, I agree with all the points that you did make. Bruce Brown almost has to play given the the Nets rotation. You know, they are so guard heavy. Goran Dragic played amazingly in the sort of 26 minutes that he did play. Can you extend him even further? Paddy Mills, you know, a lot of people sort of hit or miss on him. I thought Paddy played well rewatching the game yesterday. I thought defensively he's not, we know he has his issues, but he was annoying. Yeah, I thought I think that he can play a little bit more than you know twelve to fifteen minutes, and and if Bruce Brown continues to play poorly, that is an option. But again, you're going to a guy that is six foot three or under, and Paddy yeah. Mills is barely six foot tall. So with Bruce, I think it, it like you sort of mentioned, Nick, he was timid, and that's that's something that we don't normally that's a, a trait we don't associate with Bruce Brown at all. You know, he's normally hyper aggressive, um, hyper confident, and, and when he's playing his best, so. Men, it's it, it might be a little bit simplistic to say just you know get the mindset right, but I also do think that you know him cutting and you know him bringing up the ball a little bit more. It didn't seem to me that he was bringing up the ball a lot. And I after think- he lost the ball to Jason Tatum, I want to say in the first quarter early on, it seemed like they went away from him really having the ball in his hands much. Yeah, and I think that you, look one play. They are an incredibly good defensive team, you know, with the attributes that they do have and the systems and IQ that they do play, thanks to Ima Yudoka and so many of the players, including Marcus Smart, Defensive Player of the Year, who had 39 points dropped in by Kyrie Irving. But that's for another day. Um, I just think also in terms of defensively, you know, we talked a little bit about the offense. I think I would rather Bruce Brown have five fouls and be overly aggressive than sort of give Jalen Brown a step, give Marcus Smart a step. Get up in their goddamn face. You're well, sure he had five fouls in game one. Well, okay. <laughs> there we go. He had... that's but a... I'll say this, Jack. They weren't good fouls. No, and, that, and that's and that's the thing. I guess it's the nature of the fouls that I'm more alluding to. And I'm glad that you're sort of, you know, being able to keep me on point with that. <laughs> the nature of the fouls, your needs to be, if he's getting five fouls, you know, hack him. You know, use your body. You know, try and get a strip. You know, make them think. That's what the Celtics did to KD. You yep. do that to, in the possessions that you're guarding Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart. It just seemed to me that he was just making it a little bit easier for the Boston Celtics. And and the Nets can't do that. You know, they're not a good defensive team. They're an average defensive team at best. And when one of your best 
you know, two or three defensive players isn't locked in and isn't aggressive and isn't physical, it's just going to make life harder for the Nets. Yeah, and I think, Jack, you touched on it too, is like some of the mental mistakes. There was times where he, him and another Nets player, you know, Seth Curry in one instance, jumping at the same guy, forcing the Nets to rotate, taking them out of their defense, setting up the Celtics with some level of an advantage, or even getting to the last possession of the game where Bruce Brown is actually out of position and he's just playing almost like a rover role where he's coming down from the baseline and going all the way up to Marcus Smart instead of trying to read the play. I think Claxton obviously makes the right play in that situation because of where he's at on the floor. I think Bruce should have been reading like, hey, I need to stick with Al. There's no point in two guys jumping at, you know, Marcus Martin, the three-point line. You know, one guy for a contest, it is what it is if he hits the shot. And I think there's another situation where he was just like over eager to make highlight defensive plays sometimes. There was a situation where Jalen Brown caught the ball in the wing and he didn't really even bring the ball up aggressively. But Bruce Brown bit on the pump fake, game out of position. Jalen gets an easy dunk late in the fourth quarter. It's those level of mental mistakes that you just can't have, especially if you're not going to do you know, a great job offensively and you're going to be limited in certain ways. Like You have to be good in the other elements. And like you said, Jack, the Nets are almost forced to play him because he's a quote-unquote bigger guard. But he's, he's like 6'3". He's like yeah, L height. <laughs> yeah. So he's just bigger than the other guys they have out there and can provide some level of physicality. But the thing that he needs to understand, too, is when he's rebounding, he is not out jumping and out reaching Al Horford and Daniel Tice. They're just bigger and taller than him. He needs to try to put a body on them and they need to group rebound. And that gets to another point of just like the bigs being lazy in that aspect. Yeah, I think that in, to finish off with sort of Bruce Brown, it it might be hyperbolic of me to sort of say, but this might be the best biggest game of his career. You know, he's heading into an offseason where he is due some sort of payday. How he performs in the postseason against some of the better teams is going to dictate how he goes. Nick Claxton showed that he he's going to be deserving of a payday because the way that he plays against some of those contenders is really, really positive. And I think that I'll back Bruce in because I've seen him perform on, on, on the big sort of stage. Again, the one that springs to mind is is that game against Milwaukee. I think it might have been game two or game three. And unfortunately, you know, he had a bit of a, a mental lapse. But he overall in that game was still really, really good. And the Milwaukee Bucks have a similar-ish sort of profile to, to the Boston Celtics in terms of what they do. And they're an elite team and et cetera, et cetera. So I'm backing Bruce in. Just hopefully put up or shut up and I'm hopefully he's putting up. Yeah, I think like you said, Jack, it's a big game. Like you said, game three last year against the Bucks, he was awesome, hit a ton of those shots. Yeah, it wasn't great in that final possession, but the Nets wouldn't have been at that point without him and the way he played in that game. So I think it's just like offensively, I'm not sure what to expect because this is such a great defense and they understand his skill set. Obviously, Ame Udoka was his coach last year, understands his limitations probably better than a lot of coaches in the NBA. So he just needs to be really good in the defense, rebounding, and hustle department. If he can do that, yeah, the points at times are probably going to come. And I think also just playing with a level of urgency. We didn't even touch on, you know, the missed layup that was blocked by Jalen Brown. And rewatching that, it was just way too casual for you to think that you're going to get easy layups in a playoff game. I think there just has to be a level of like focus and engagement. And some of that wasn't just Bruce. That was multiple players on the Nets yesterday or Sunday not playing well. No, definitely. And you alluded to the bigs and the rebounding. I guess it'll lead us to a discussion about what has been you know, a big talking point on Nets Twitter and you know all Nets social media in general about you know whether LaMarcus Aldridge or Blake Griffin should slot into the lineup. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform 
with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In terms of the the big rotation, seems to me that the clax is solidified. Do you think that Drummond should still play? Do you think that they should go somewhere else? Do you think Blake should be inserted in some form or fashion for a bit of extra size? You know, he's more of a natural power forward, even though as his career has waned, you generally turn into a, a center. I guess all of those questions, I'll, I'll throw my stats out there once you provide your thoughts. Where does the big rotation stand outside of Clack City? Yeah, I mean, I have some takeaways. We'll touch on those after in terms of the bigs. I think Clax was excellent yesterday. I keep saying yesterday because I rewatched yesterday. Sunday, Clax was awesome on Sunday. I think he did a ton of things that you wanted him to do. Obviously, the biggest issue with him in that game is just missing free throws. But defensively, he provided a lot. His obviously versatility allowed the Nets to play some level of switch defense in which they looked the best version of themselves when they were switching in that game. And then also... On the boards, he was able to have an impact. He was able to be active and get some finishes, and he was uh, uh, persistent in terms of some of the finishes. You know, there was one attempt where he went up against Al Horford, Grant Williams, probably got fouled, missed it, came up on the other side of the rim, got the board, and put it down. He made a lot of big plays in that game, and he has to see majority of the minutes. You know, he almost has to see as many minutes as he can handle because he's just that much of a better option than the other guys they can play. No, he, he really is. So 31 minutes is, is pretty high for, for Clax, but now his conditioning is sort of up there. You might push that to sort of 35-ish, start him, you know, as, again, my my uh, my esteemed co-host advocated for in that sort of first podcast, in the preview podcast that we did. So Nick's uh, not, he's not just, a, his hat, his head isn't just a hat rack. You know, he's got a, <laughs> he's got some brains in there and, pl- and plenty of them also. For the record, I did look it up and it, these are the stats of, in terms of PVP stats, in terms of on-off numbers, comparing Andre Drummond, Blake Griffin, and LaMarcus Aldridge. When Andre Drummond's on the floor, the Nets have a whopping 123.7 offensive rating, but he is also the worst defensive pick that they have with a 118 defensive rating. Blake Griffin, 110.6 offensive rating, 114.8 defensive rating. LaMarcus Aldridge, 114.4 offensive rating, 113.3 defensive rating. Now, again, take these stats with a grain of salt because it's when they're on the floor. How often is Blake Griffin on the floor with the superstars this year? Not very often. LaMarcus Aldridge, a lot of his minutes came at the start of the year when the Nets were having some success. And Andre Drummond, obviously, has been playing well when the superstars have been out there alongside Seth Curry, you know, all that sort of thing. So contextually, yes, I put out stats and... Sometimes I should provide a little bit extra context, but, you know, it's Twitter. Who cares? Let people interpret it how they want to do it. In saying that, Nick, do those numbers sway you in any sort of direction or is it more just a feel for how this series is and the matchups are as they are? Yeah, I think, like you said, Jack, with the context, you can kind of break it down a little bit and gives you a better idea of what to expect with those guys and seeing them play this season. 
I think really the case is for Andre Drummond. You give him another shot in game two. You give him an opportunity to prove that he can play better than what he did because I think he really can. He just wasn't very energetic and wasn't full of effort in making plays in that game. But if he doesn't, I think you even look to the second half of game two of maybe trying out Blake Griffin or LaMarcus Aldridge. I'd probably lean towards Blake just because I believe in his mobility a little bit more than I believe in LaMarcus's. But the counter would be... You know, LaMarcus can provide you more offensively, especially against a smaller team that really doesn't have a post defender that could deal with him if LaMarcus is really feeling himself. But the thing with LaMarcus, too, is he hasn't really played much the last two months of the season. He didn't look super spry the last two months either. So I'd probably try Blake if Drummond was terrible. And again, this is not Blake for a large chunk of minutes. This is let me see what you can do in a couple minutes. And if you don't play well, we're just going to have to adapt. I just think Drummond, there was just too many issues where they were able to successfully attack him on the floor, you know, defensively and offensively, just not doing much. And like we talked about on the recap, if he's not, you know, being a generational rebounder and providing an impact in that area, he's not really doing his best on the floor because that's the skill that's going to keep him on the floor is creating those extra possessions and ending defensive possessions. And there's also too many times, and this goes for Clax and KD as well, that they were leaving it to the guards to out-rebound Daniel Tice and Al Horford. They're not elite rebounders, but they're bigs. And you can't ask three guards to out-rebound two bigs. Yeah, normally the Nets do a decent job of gang rebounding in terms of when their switching scheme is in full effect, but they just weren't doing that. You know, they were forcing Al Horford to rebound over Seth Curry, which is, you know, barbecue chicken every yep. day of the week. I think that I would, again, I agree with what you're sort of saying. I would give Andre Drummond a short leash if Steve Nash is going to do that, give him a second sort of chance. Look, you got five, six minutes to show us what you can do out there and show us that you are not unplayable. Otherwise, clacks, we're going to give you 35 minutes plus and experiment with whether it's Kessler Edwards or Blake Griffin, I think both of those guys are just decent enough and they give you something different. I think Kess obviously is young, but he's in it, but he's you know, youthfulness could be give you something. Obviously a good athlete, obviously a good rebounder. Blake, I just think, is a sort of connector. You know, he's sort of like a a, a D grade, C grade Al Horford, who, you know, maybe Cam was right in terms of putting him in the top four of our ranking in the plays in the series because he was great. So maybe Blake Griffin can give you just some semblance of that. I don't know, but I think that throwing some things at the wall and forcing the Celtics to react to what you're doing can't hurt either. And Steve Nash has shown that he can be experimental. And this, you know, he might have to be against a, a team like the Celtics, especially on the offensive end of the floor, where Blake can give you a little bit because he is a good, he is really, really good in the short roll. He's a great passer. He's great on the dribble handoffs. He's a good screener. He's just really, really smart at basketball in terms of what he can give you on the offensive end. Defensively, look, he might get attacked, but you know, I, I still think that he is decent enough um, to, to sort of just see what he can do for 10, 15 minutes. But we'll see how that does pan out, uh, I, I guess. Yeah, I think I like the connector point you brought up, Jack, in terms of the offense. Instead of being, you know, his his three-point shot is debatable at this time. You know, he had moments where he looked like he could still shoot the three, other moments where it looked like, yeah, the, the opposing team is really happy when he's taking that shot. So it's kind of a matter of does he knock down his first two. But again, he's more of a non-spacer out on the perimeter which is sometimes an advantage because it gives you an outlet pass when you do get stuck. You know what I mean? All right, let's toss the ball back out to Blake, reset the offense, run a dribble handoff, whatever it is. I think he's a better offensive player in doing a lot of different things that Andre Drummond, LaMarcus Aldridge, and Nick Claxton just can't do because they don't have that skill level. And Blake's 
you know, willing to dribble the basketball a little bit. And sometimes watching that game, it just felt like a lot of guys were almost scared to dribble. You know, you just need to move a little bit on the floor, force the defense to move. And, you know, Blake make a couple hustle plays. Like you said, though, defensively, what can he do? They're going to attack him. They're going to switch hunt him. They did it last year in the playoffs when they didn't have all these guys and they were trying to get Jason Tatum that matchup. So it's going to be on him to just play an extremely high level for 10 minutes and try to come in and take a couple charges and just maybe rebound the basketball as well as he possibly can. So I'm not opposed to at least, you know, testing Blake if Drummond is bad. And obviously, like I said, Drummond still, I think, deserves a chance to redeem himself. But like you said, you know, it can't necessarily be a long leash. And maybe it just becomes a point where Drummond starts the first quarter, starts the third quarter, plays extremely physical for 12 minutes, and that's his role. Yeah, especially if taking charges is going to be a big part of this series, as we did see in... (laughs) Man, I just need to stop tweeting stuff to just get Celtics fans in my mentions. Well, I, I'll defend you too. Is like a lot of people are like, oh, that's a clear cut charge. Well, like you can look up the rule on NBA.com. Like you need to give the player space to change direction. And if he's coming off a jump, he cannot change direction. And I, it doesn't matter how long Lamar, uh, uh, Marcus Smart was standing there, Claxton is coming down from a jump. So at the end of the day, that's just poor officiating. I'll look. I, we've got Nets fans on this podcast. No, maybe a couple of Celtics fans here or there. And and you know, if you are joining us, thank you for joining us. We'll try to be as objective as possible. But uh, again, you know, Blake is is one of the best in the league and has been the best in the league at taking charges. You know, up there with Kyle Lowry, Marcus Smart, who is a defensive player of the year. Both of those guys are good defensive players. And Blake has been good, you know, for, in in spurts for the Nets as well. And Blake's a dick, and the Nets could use that in the series. Yeah, and I think you know that's what you know. We'll get to Ben Simmons a little bit later. More updates with him. It seems like every single podcast something new comes out or it's just the same reworded basically but we'll still touch on it because we all want ben 10 back sooner rather than later is there this doesn't have to be a lengthy discussion because we're trying to keep this as compact as possible because we might have a special bonus podcast too for you today hopefully is there any argument at all for lamarcus aldridge you know the lamarcus aldridge argument would have to be the nets fight through screens you know vigorously they fight through those screens and get through those screens and I'll tell you, that's something they did not do well in game one. And that was an issue. And one of the biggest issues that one of my biggest takeaways was Kevin Durant on Jason Tatum and him trying to stick on Jason Tatum was almost hampering the defense because KD's not great at getting through screens. We talked about it before. It just one of the rare things that physically put him at a disadvantage with his size, like fighting over a screen at that size is just going to be difficult to do. And then also he just doesn't have elite level foot speed in terms of getting back in position. So even when he, you know, they'd maybe show and then Katie would fight through and get back in position on Tatum, but then it would mess up other aspects or then Katie would be in kind of a trailing, you know, mode against Jason Tatum. And it was really, really obvious that Kevin Durant wanted to defend Kate uh, Tatum and that Celtics almost played into that a little bit. And I think they just have to be willing to be more adjustable, more versatile and reactionary instead of just being like KD's on Tatum. Like I still think KD probably his best version of himself as a defender is off ball when he's kind of a, a roamer. And we talked about that, but the other issue is who else do you throw at Jason Tatum? That's the problem. But I think the nets just have to switch because I think that's how they play their best. And I think they have to throw timely doubles at Tatum and kind of force the ball out of his hands. And, allow him to be trapped because there's one thing that I did notice is that Tatum will take bait sometimes and allow himself to get into a corner or get into a bad position. And yeah, sure. Occasionally hit a ridiculous shot or make a great pass, but there's times where you can kind of capitalize that because he's not fully 
a fully finished, you know, superstar product. He's ascending to that level right now. So there's still opportunities to kind of capitalize. He hasn't seen the level of defense in which Kevin Durant has seen. So I think that's one area that they really need to change up because it also just like took Katie out of the defense and he's too important as a help defender not to be there. No, I, I totally agree. You know, Katie and Clax, you know, at the sort of, you know, helming the back line. Yep. It feels like one of them has to be there at the very least. And and maybe you just throw caution into someone and go, Bruce, you know, maybe it's time for you for a little bit. Or you, Kess or whoever else it might be. Obviously, the Nets are going to switch. It'd be but, really nice to have Ben Simmons right now. I mean, you look, we'll, we'll, Nick, you know, save it, mate. It's, on, <laughs> it's later on in the Google Doc because we want the listeners to stick with us for all those hype little juicy chats. But in saying that, I think you, you're on the money there as well, Nick. And in, 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 I think that they need to take a leaf out of the Celtics playbook and just throw some different crazy things. Yeah. Be physical. You know, make him earn it early on. If the, if the Nets aren't engaged early on and are sort of just going to allow Jason Tatum to you know, isolate onto whoever it is, whether it's Kevin Durant, Bruce Brown, or whoever else, it just makes life easy for him. You know, it makes life easy for any superstar wing like Tatum, like Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, Kevin Durant. These sort of guys eat up isolation coverage. You know, throw a body at him. Throw a second guy. You know, make him earn it early on. If he's driving, you know, to the rim, you know, get a flagrant, whatever. Just there needs to be a level of because when it's done early on, especially, it you know sways the referees one way or another. Okay, well we're gonna let some of this shit go, as it happened with the Boston Celtics. Then that's the way that the game will uh, will sort of pan out. So if the Nets are more physical, more engaged, then that's the way that the game will likely pan out and, and it makes the, the referees make some tough calls. And a lot of them, the calls that Kevin Durant didn't get were blatantly there. You know, he was being shoved relentlessly. Do some of that shit to Jason Tatum. Yeah. I don't think he is... I think he's a, a wonderful player and, and an all-NBA, you know, probably first, if not second team. But I also do think that any great player doesn't like to be uncomfortable we yep. saw that from kevin durant you know plain and simple and i think a lot of people were like oh kevin durant isn't getting the criticism we did you know i think that a lot of people that you know watch the game did it's just that general media people you know might not have the same nuance about the brooklyn nets and their players like we do not to toot our own horns so i think that it needs to be you know a, a level of physicality engagement aggression your differentiation, all of those sort of buzzwords that you want to talk about to make their best player, make life hard for him like they did for KD because that went a long way to the Celtics winning the game. Yeah. If the Celtics, you know, if Jason Tatum makes a, a million threes or you're just, he, he just, life seemed easier for him than it was for Kevin Durant. Now, I'm not saying the Nets have the kettle to do that as much as the Celtics did. They have Horford, Tice, Brown, Smart, all these sort of guys to just, you know, they're just better in terms yeah. of defensively, and they're bigger. Whereas the Nets don't have that. And they that. have less guys to worry about that can beat them, where when you're facing the Celtics, there's more options that can kind of punish you. So it's it's going to be an interesting thing. A lot of the things that we're saying you know, seem easy to, to talk about and to execute them. You know, It's going to be interesting to see whether the Nets can do that for long enough. And even if it is just a couple of possessions here or there early on, that's what I want to see. So... Yeah, we've talked about a lot of adjustments, Nick. In terms of any other... Just one note on that, Jack. I just think another thing, like for them to play this good defense on Tatum, they have to get back in transition and set up their defense. And that was that just happened way too many times for a playoff game. Like It's just not acceptable for you not to get back and be in position. Jalen Brown was able to take advantage of that and just do different things and kind of make the Nets look silly out there. So 
to me, it's just like the lack of engagement and focus and like doing the the small things that you can do that set you up for success, the Nets weren't doing. And some of that was even offensively, just like the sets being so stagnant or taking, you know, six years to bring the ball up the floor. Another thing that I brought up too is just like casually moving off ball. And Kyrie, as good as he was in that game, he was a culprit of this. And he definitely made life harder for his friend Kevin Durant because there was too many times where he was just literally walking to the corner and his defender was going at KD. You just need to be spatially aware because his defense is so good that they know what they're doing. And, you know, one play that we talked about on the show and that I, I uh, clipped out as well is, you know, the Nets are set up. Patty makes a timely uh, cut across baseline to the other corner, disrupts the Celtics' entire defense. You know, I think Gorin ended up getting a wide open three in the corner. You know, it's those type of things where you need to be smart off ball. Like your impact off ball is almost as important as on ball against a defense like the Celtics. No, definitely. And I think that some more KD Kyrie pick and roll. It's sort of like the Steph Curry, you know, Kevin Durant pick and roll. You know, the, it's it's not used a lot because Kevin Durant isn't the most willing screener in the world. Yeah. It seems to me Kyrie's probably more of has been more of a willing screener. Yeah. So that is just a weapon. And if you're gonna switch that, okay, I'm gonna switch on the Kyrie, I'm gonna switch on the Kevin Durant, that needs to be utilized a little bit more also because that is just a deadly play because the Celtics are going to switch and they're going to switch very capably if it's you know lesser players like Bruce Brown or whoever else it might be Claxton these sort of guys you can't you got to really make sure you are switched on if it's yeah. Katie and Kyrie so at least a couple of times a quarter trying to gain an ascendancy there because that's where you can gain an advantage because Kyrie Irving was cooking you know the Celtics and, and he was I, I don't see that changing in terms of I, I think he can find advantages if it's it's just going to be if he can be as efficient and look he might not have as great a game as one of the best games that he's ever played but I still think he'll be able to gain advantages and whether he doesn't hit those shots he'll still be opening up you know different lanes and and then different spaces for himself teammates even KD as well so that's one thing I, I want to see as well any final thoughts heading into game two Nick yeah, it's just kind of a build up on what you just said, Jack, is like Kyrie definitely was able to eat against almost any Celtics defender. You know, Derek White maybe did the best job if I guess I had to say anybody, but it was more so about who else was on the floor and wh what type of space was available. Like the difference between Goran Dragic and Bruce Brown on the floor was substantial in terms of spacing. It was the difference between Al Horford having one foot in the paint or Al Horford having no feet in the paint. So that alone is just something the Nets have to find a balance of like, is it worth just giving up some of these matchups defensively to play more shooters? Or do we have to lean in defensively and try to find ways to incorporate Bruce Brown? So they essentially have to guard him. Definitely for the record. I put this stat out on my Twitter. A total of 435 playoff series had at some point a 2-0 advantage. Only 31 teams, 7.1%, have come back to win a series from an 0-2 deficit. A lot of people were pointing out the Bucs did it twice. The Bucs also did it because they injured our players. So, like, unless the Nets are incredibly lucky and have that sort of those fortunate circumstances, you know, like the Suns did in last year's postseason, like the Bucs did in last year's postseason, it's going to be tough. And a lot of people are saying, it's a seven-game series. Let's just chill, guys. I said on the last pod, I'm saying it on this pod, game two is a must win. A must, must, must win. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of pressure on the Nets to win this game. Like you said, Jack, you dropped the stats. I will say, I think this team is capable of coming back from 2-0. I wouldn't put money on it. But again, I would love for them to win game two. And that's why I think game one hurt so bad is because you knew it was a great opportunity to put yourself in a great position for the series. And, you know, it was just failed on so many miscues. Like, the amount of mental mistakes and just not being prepared for what the Celtics were doing is 
just disappointing. And I think uh, like they were just the they look like the veteran team that's been in numerous postseasons. The Nets look like a team, like a young team that's never been there before. Even some of their best players who have you know have, have done great things in the finals. It, and I think that's what is just like damn man like if if they can't like turn it up for a full full game in the playoffs then like i'm concerned and i think game two is going to give us a better message about what this team can be like i think at the very least i want to see them play really really well if they still lose in boston you know has you know an insane game from three or something you can live with it to an extent but if they come out and play the same way they played in game one i'd be extremely disappointed Totally fair. I need that dub. That's all I care. I don't <laughs> care if it, how they play. If they win 90 to 75, I just want the win. It's as simple as that. And look, the stats, you know, obviously stats are made to be broken. History is made to be broken. But let's look forward. Game two and game three beyond. Speaking of game three, Nick, well, not game three because this wasn't reported. But according to uh, numerous reporters, we heard from Ramona Shelburne, who's been pretty switched on with this Ben Simmons stuff, that Ben Simmons is pain-free. She talked also about the one-on-one, the two-on-two, three-on-three, four-on-four, five-on-five, as well on the jump or whatever that, that new show is called. Uh, NBA Today, sorry. I wanted to get that one right. Uh, but we also did hear Shams, who... Pat, Ma- Pat McAfee, am I saying it right? I, I keep saying it wrong. I, th- I think you're saying it right. Honestly, I've heard like people say it like seven different ways, and <laughs> Pat doesn't seem like the type of guy that would care as long as you say it with some level of energy. <laughs> yeah, Pat McAfee! There, there you go. Um, Sham <laughs> seems to bring a lot of juicy nuggets to uh, to his show whenever he's on, and he said that the Nets are very confident that Ben Simmons will be able to make a return as soon as next Monday, which would be around that sort of game four time. Now, the Nets, I believe, Nick, you can correct me if I'm wrong, the Game 3 and Game 4 rest days, it's it's basically like one day. Yep, so it's, yep. it doesn't really make the biggest difference in the world between Game 3 and Game 4. So I understand the Nets are always going to be, you know, play things under the, keep things, their cards close to their chest. If you're playing Game 4, why can't he just play Game 3, mate? Yeah, I mean, especially if you just want to play him less minutes. Like, I mean, at this point, I'd be happy to see Ben for eight minutes, like put him out there, let him do something, see how he looks and then go with it in, you know, game four and see if he can play to NBA level. Because I think that's still, you know, a little bit of a concern is like, what can he do on the floor given he hasn't played all season long and postseason basketball is not regular season basketball. So you want to see him as soon as possible to know if like this is something that can help you throughout the rest of the series. No, definitely. And I think we've spoken about and we'll probably dive deep, deep, deep if we do get any news. We'll have to do like a, a podcast right before game three if there's an announcement uh, around that. So look, Ben Simmons, just pure presence on the floor. He's he's one of the eight best players in the Nets rotation, even if he is, hasn't played for a year. Don't know what he looks like. He's still you know better than Kessler Edwards. We, we won't be debating about LaMarcus Aldridge and Blake Griffin. You know, it's just like Ben Simmons is there. And he gives you a genuine viable option. And look, I understand the sort of 10 to 15 minutes sort of range. Knowing Steve Nash, if he's just like, Ben, how you feeling? He's like, yeah, I'm fine. Cool, you're playing 35 minutes for us. <laughs> sort of like what KD, you know, when he played, he missed like three minutes over the total of like, you know, a two, three game span in that Milwaukee Bucks series. I, I don't know how it will pan out. I'll stick with, with game three. You know, the, I still haven't got the pie yet because it hasn't been confirmed. Uh, I might have to eat, you know, again, a, a pie in Australia. I don't know if they'll allow me to bring in any delicious, sweet pies uh, from this uh, gorgeous country. But in saying that, Nick, Ben Simmons' return also gives you just this added level of anticipation and, you know, there's certain energy things about, you know, 
Marcus Smart won Defensive Player of the Year. He's going to be locked in for, for game two and sort of bringing his level of energy. You know, all of the discourse about Rudy Gobert, there's just certain intangible things that could give the Nets a little bit of a jolt and that extra 1%, 2% that you can't necessarily quantify. But it, all of those little things matter when it comes to playoff basketball. Yeah, the Nets had 1% more in game one, they win. You know, it's just as simple as that. So if he can just bring energy to the crowd alone, I think it's going to be huge. I think another aspect, not to be negative, is just making sure you find a way for him to be utilized and he doesn't get the Bruce Brown treatment. But I think that's also where you could see the Nets go small. And, you know, we talked about, you know, Blake or LaMarcus playing. Nah, we're going to go with Ben at the five because, you know, Al Horford and Tice aren't these imposing players to a, a Ben Simmons and a Kevin Durant front court. You know, it's it's different when you're putting, you know, KD with, you know, Kessler Edwards or Bruce Brown out there. But when you're putting with Ben, there is some level of size and physicality that he can bring. And I think I just like look at him. If he could just like play 15 minutes and pick up full court, I think that'd be enough to just like take Boston a little bit out of their offense. And I think too many times they just got into their offense with real ease and it felt like their offensive possessions were so long. Yeah, I think it's the the nature of just Ben Simmons' physical profile. Yeah. The dude's like 6'9", six, 6'10", six, can rebound the ball incredibly well. Elite athlete. Elite athlete, really tight handle, all those sort of things. That is just like, okay, he's exactly what the Nets need in a series against the Boston Celtics. Again, the level that you're going to get from him probably isn't going to be 100%, but I wouldn't put it past him because he looks pretty goddamn eager to, to get out there with all of the little things that are happening behind the scenes. Um, any final things, Nick, before we get to a little bit of draft talk to finish the episode? Yeah, I'll just say this thing about Ben. I know I mentioned negatively how Bruce has been treated and Ben can be treated the same way, but the one thing that's different is when Ben has a one-on-one -on -one matchup against somebody at the rim, he's attacking the rim. He is dunking the basketball or going for the layup or he's collapsing the paint and able to make the pass out to the three-point shooter that you know Bruce can do to an extent, but just not at the same level in which Ben Simmons can do. And that's just some of the gifts that he has. So like you said, there's just a lot of ways that he could have a positive impact if he is healthy. I will also say that you know if you're the Boston Celtics, I've heard this proposed before. You know What's it going to be like from the free throw line? You, know, you get your first possession, boom, hack him. You know, and, and look, I, I think that that is a fair strategy. Sort of test him mentally. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a game you know, of X's and O's, little bit of things, but all that sort of stuff. So Pushing buttons uh, here and there. Like, that's what you got to do. And uh, you know, we uh, better hope Kyle Korver is doing his job. Yeah, <laughs> that, true. Look, we saw that video, Nick. He's shooting threes. No, I don't really care about that. Uh, but we'll, we'll definitely have to do probably 40 million emergency podcasts, you know, about more updates from Shams and ESPN and Ramona Shelburne and Woj probably before game two, game three, whenever the hell it does happen. But to finish with, you know, a little bit of draft news, we did hear that the Nets landed pick 23, which is obviously uh, via that Philadelphia 76ers trade. And they do have the option uh, to uh, defer it to 2023, though they must decide by June 21, which is three weeks before uh, the draft this year. Nick, I guess the, the big question about it all, do they defer or do they stay where they are? You know what I would say is you kind of you feel out the league and see what type of value that pick has. You know, if there's a if you could use it in a trade this season, you you want to think, you know, is that on the table? Then sure. If not, if you don't think the value is there or you necessarily need it, I think you just go with the unprotected 2023 pick because you know, I'm, and I don't mean, I don't hope anyone gets hurt, but Joel Embiid, James Harden, not the healthiest guys in the NBA, especially Harden the last season and a half and Embiid throughout his career, you know, a couple injuries to that team. And next thing you know, they're picking 18 or 20 or something higher if they have a rough season. So I think, you know, unless you feel it's necessary, I think I prefer to defer in that situation because unprotected picks just typically have more value. 
And I also do think that the nature of this year's draft, that the value of that late first round pick isn't going to be like it was like for this year. You know, and the Nets have a decent year, so. amount of young guys on the roster already. No, I, I think that it's 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 going to be it's the asset itself. You know, yep. what can it get you in a Joe Harris? What did you know, it's sort of trade Nick Claxton signing? Oh, like all these sort of different machinations to improve the team. So, look, I, I doubt it's going to be used this year. What is more likely to happen is that it gets used in a trade for, yep. for some other pack, player in a package or it gets deferred to next year where, like you said, it could have increased value, which I would go with as well because I, I, I think that the, the Philadelphia 76 is going to be a completely different team next year. They'll probably have a lot more shooters and, and that sort of thing. But like you alluded to, you know, James Harden's health concerns and, and Joel Embiid's health concerns, you know, you miss those guys for 10, 15 games apiece. You know, what are you relying on? But again, you know, it's it's hard to to we can barely think forward to Wednesday in game two, let alone think forward to a, a whole goddamn year uh, when when the draft is happening. But certainly something to keep an eye on in terms of the way the Nets continue to look to improve their roster because the way that they look right now, there are a lot of holes. A hundred percent. And I think also just to you know, the way the season ends is it ends in a championship. It ends, you know, in disappointment that could have an influence on what you want to do with the pick and all those different elements. But Jack, anything else you want to touch on before we get out of here? Not really, mate. Um, I'm, I'm blocking a lot of Celtics fans on Twitter. <laughs> I think I might have to keep doing that, but I enjoy the discourse as well. If it's friendly and it's good banter, because this is a high stakes series. And, you know, with a lot of the other playoff series being a little bit of a letdown, this one is a one prime, prime, yep. juicy rib. It is absolutely Gorgeous, and you know I'm looking forward to game two. Hopefully, it's a net stub. Yeah, division rivals rematch from last year. We know the Kyrie stuff and all that. Even Nash and Udoka being, you know, former coaches together. So, like you said, Jack, plenty of things to be hyped about in this series, especially considering the the way the rest of them are going. But as always, a pleasure talking Nets with you. And big thanks to everybody for listening. Check the buzz on all streaming platforms. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.